Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here with us, and welcome to Trinity. And if you're online, thank you for tuning in. And we're glad we're worshiping with us today, even if it's online. And today we are continuing in the book of Matthew. And if you've been with us that long, you know that we started this series sometime back in the fall of 2018. And we're about 70% of the way through the book. My name is Todd, and I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. And if this is your first time joining us, then the way we go through the book is expositionally. So what you'll see is we are going through the book a passage at a time, little by little, making sure that we understand the context of the passage at the time that it was written, who it, how the early church would have interpreted it, and how it applies to us today. So by way of context, in today's passage, we find Jesus continuing on his way to Jerusalem. And he has mentioned twice before now that he will be going to the cross. And he will mention it again even before we get out of this chapter. And looking backwards, we know that what lies ahead for Christ is death. He's heading into his final phase of his earthly ministry, and he's going to Jerusalem to die. And today's passage continues in the last section of the book of Matthew, which is essentially the fifth section of the book. It's primarily concerned with the coming judgment, both the judgment that Jesus will experience and the judgment that Jerusalem will experience. And today's passage is a continuation of last week's conversation with Peter and the disciples after the narrative of the rich young ruler. And here Christ is specifically addressing in today's passage an answer to Peter's question about the rewards that he can expect. As a matter of fact, what kind of rewards all kingdom citizens can expect? It's really an answer to the rich young ruler's problem in Peter's question at the end of chapter 19 that we're going to tackle today. What can we expect? What is a fair reward? You've heard this word fairness. It gets a lot of traction in households. It's the battle cry of children. You've heard it how many times I can't even begin to imagine. But the call, that's not fair. And raising three daughters, Janelle and I heard that more times than I can even remember In the midst of it, we'd often have a conversation with our children about fairness and equity. What does that mean? Well, they often don't want fairness. What they often want is equity. And they often want equity or equality when it suits their purpose. And most situations are resolved fairly. So oftentimes they want exactly what the other person has. And as a police officer, this comes up a lot in my line of work, but no place more prevalent than in conversations about justice. And as an example, on the one hand, if you have two men, let's say, convicted of the same crime, murder, for example, all things being equal, they should get the same punishment, especially if the crime is murder, right? That would be equal, equal punishment under the law. But let's say one of the men had a previous conviction for murder. So the judge gives him 10 more years because he's killed somebody before. Well, that's not equal. They don't receive the exact same punishment. But would you say it's fair? It's fair that they consider other factors? It's fair that they consider a previous crime? 
Would it be fair if the person had committed the same, time, the same crime before to give him the same penalty as he gave the other person? And would you not be obligated for the sake of judgment, for the sake of justice, to take into account previous convictions and sentence him to a longer sentence even though both men committed the same crime? So if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew 20. We'll read the passage, pray, and then we'll dive into it and sort through this. So here we go, chapter 20. We'll be covering verses 1 through 16 today. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to open your word today especially in the midst of a world that has no peace. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us today. We pray that it gives us hope, fills us with surety, that you are a God who lives. Give us peace today as we learn about you and focus our minds on your glorious word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if we look at this passage, we see right away that the first word of the passage is for, which gives us the context we know from other passages, that for means because or therefore. It's a conjunction and joins the passage to the previous passage at the end of chapter 19. So what Jesus is going to do here is Jesus is going to provide a parable to help explain what he has previously said. And he's specifically answering the two questions at the end of chapter 19. After the rich young ruler goes away sad... We have the two relevant questions, one in verse 25 that comes from the disciples, and they ask, who then can be saved? And they ask this in response to Jesus making the statement, it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if we look on in verse 27, Peter says in in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Obviously, Peter has heard what Christ has said to the rich young ruler. And he's probably thinking, well, what Jesus said is exactly what we have done. We have left everything to follow him. And he asks, 
What then will we have? And if you recall last week's sermon, you know what Jesus tells him he will have. If you have followed me, you will have 12 thrones. You will have a hundredfold and, it will, and, will, inherit, and will inherit eternal life. That is what they will have. But Jesus goes on in verse 30 to say, but many who are first will be last in the last first. Regarding this parable, we only see it in Matthew. There's no parallel passage in the synoptics. And the passage itself is titled, The Laborers in the Vineyard. But I think what we'll see as we go through it, that as many scholars have noted, this is really about a parable about equal wages for unequal work. It's more about the character of the landowner than it is about the laborers. And at first glance, the parable seems to be about some guys showing up at the beginning of the day and being promised a denarius, and other guys showing up at the end of the day and be given a denarius. And you might wonder, who does that? Who pays the same, the same wage for people that show up and do a tenth of the work? Well, we'll put it like that, we can sense the injustice of the question itself. Who gets paid equal wages for unequal work? That is a sentiment that often we ourselves, I myself, am prone to think in different situations. Why are they getting that and I am getting this? And in some situations, this could even cause outrage. And some of it would be justified outrage. And I'll give an example from my own life. I have three daughters and two of them are servers. And one of them was telling me, after she got a job at a restaurant immediately after COVID hit, that she, at one point, was doing takeout and the different servers were coming in to run food out. And the only person that had the card to log onto the register was her. So essentially, she was logged onto the register all day long and everybody else just rang in food and recorded transactions under her login. So at the end of the day, what they did was they tallied up everything under her login and then split it between all the servers. Well, what she found is that she had worked the bulk of the day and other people had worked maybe an hour or maybe two hours. But what she was outraged about is that everything of the day was attributed to her and split evenly. Evenly, even though other people didn't work as many hours. Since everybody was on her login, whether they were there all day or whether they were there just a, few, just a part of the day, they got an equal share. And that seems wrong, doesn't it? In my example from before about justice, everybody getting an equal share is often equal, but it's not often fair. And in this example, the difference would be if my daughter was the owner. And that's what we're going to see in today's passage if my daughter was the owner of the restaurant. And if she paid everyone the highest wage, if she paid everyone the wage that the, that the biggest earner had made, well, that wouldn't be equal. It'd be equal as it relates to the payment, but it wouldn't be equal as far as the work goes. But would it be fair? Well, I don't know if it'd be fair, but it would be as gracious and it'd be charitable. It would be God, it'd be what God shows us. 
So if we look back at this passage, we see the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to rise, excuse me, to hire laborers for his vineyard. And if we, if we think about that, we've seen that same comparison formula a couple other places in the book of Matthew, specifically in chapter 13, we've seen it twice, where the kingdom is compared to a man who sowed good seeds in his field in verse 24, and in verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the field. So this is a familiar formula to us. And if we look at the comparison itself, we see that there are two groups that are being compared. So we've got one group, which is the landowner. It's not a group, it's a person. And another group, which is several groups of workers, all that came at different times. And the landowner is clearly a representation of God. And the workers, the worker are divided into two main groups. There are the ones that come at the beginning of the day and are promised a certain wage. They're promised a denarius for their work. Four other groups fall into the latter category. Those that the landowner retrieved at different hours. The third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour. As I said, that the, land, the vineyard, the landowner is God, and in many of the different texts, you'll see him described as different things, master of the house or the landowner. But in the parable, he's not just the owner of the vineyard. The master of the house, he's not just a master of the house. That's a term that actually applies to the master of the entire operation. He manages the household, including the family, the servants, and the slaves. This man has authority. It's his vineyard. And it is his to do with what he wishes. And I think we'd also see that he cares about the vineyard. He cares about the vineyard because he gets up early and he goes out to find the best workers to work in the vineyard. And we can also presume that he doesn't really have to. If he's the master of the entire operation, he's probably got people. And we see later on that he's got a foreman, but he himself goes out to hire the best workers. He does this because he deeply cares about the vineyard. In looking at this, in the Jewish economy, there are a couple of other important things also. One is about the times. The Jewish excuse me, the Jewish working day went from dawn to dusk. So in this story, the landowner is getting out at first light to hire workers. And although we generally think of the Jewish day running from six to six, it's from sunup to sundown. So when we see third hour, it's the third hour after sunrise, which is probably pretty close to 9 a.m. The other thing is to notice is that when we go through this, we'll see that they get paid at the end of the day. And this is important, too, because in these times, people lived day to day on their earnings. If you didn't work that day, you didn't eat that day. And this is difficult to wrap your mind around living in the West in the age of debit cards and direct deposit, thinking about getting paid the same day for a day's worth of work. But these people needed daily support. They needed daily support or they would go hungry. And about the payment, 
As I said, the landowners are required to pay them daily. In fact, the Torah says in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, the landowner is required to pay their workers before the sun sets. It goes on to add, because the workers rely on it. So let's take a closer look at the groups. In Matthew 20, verse 2, we see, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. This group gets the landowner to agree to a fair wage of a denarius a day, which is the standard daily wage at that particular time. This is my first point. These first group of, war, of laborers, what they really desire is a contract. But what they should desire is a covenant. This first group seems concerned to make sure that the landowner agrees to, to pay them a fair wage and he does. And it makes you wonder when we read that he, he's very agreeable and he agrees to the denarius if he would have agreed had they asked for more. And given all we know about the landowner, again, he's up early to get the best workers and he's agreeable, says he agrees to a fair wage, they might have held out for more. And later on we'll read that they're angry. And it does make you wonder if this is why they are angry later on. Should they have asked for a better wage? Might he have paid it? We're going to see that as the people come in and work for an hour, he gives them the same wage. So maybe they're mad because they didn't hold out for more. But to continue, the landowner goes back to the marketplace several more times, starting after the third hour, around 9 a.m., where he finds men standing there. It's interesting to note that this group is simply, he simply offers them employment and promises them a fair wage and they immediately go to work. And you can probably draw the correlation that they either trust the landowner or it's just from need. They need whatever they can get. They know that if they don't work that day, they're not going to get paid. And we see this other group goes out basically, basically the same way Verse 6 says he went out the 6th hour and the ninth hour, which would have been around noon and again at 3. And finally, he goes out at the 11th hour, around 5 o'clock, when the workday is almost over. The difference between all these groups, the men at 9, 12, 3, and 5, is they all go to the vineyard at the invitation of the landowner and the promise of fairness. Fair treatment, but no negotiated price. No terms other than the promise of work and the promise of fair treatment. But the first group has it all worked out, right? They've got a contract. They know they're going to get paid a denarius at the end of the day. They know they're earning a day's wage. They have an agreement set in stone. They have a contract, a written or spoken agreement, especially one concerning employment, that is intended to be enforceable by law. That's what these people have. But again, what they really need is a covenant, which is what we see with the other groups. This promise of the landowner to treat them fairly for whatever work they do and essentially take care of them. With these other people, the landowner shows up and tells them to go work in the vineyard and he will pay them what's fair and they do it. 
And what do you think they think they'll get paid? I don't know if they know, but they seem to trust the landowner to make good and to treat them fairly. Then the landowner goes out one last time on the 11th hour, around five, with one hour left in the day. So I ask you, how much work is there to be done at five? Is there enough to go find more workers? Do you think that they were just about finished? The landowner was thinking, if I just hire a few more workers, I'll be able to speed this up. I'll have some massive initiative I'll be able to finish in an hour that wouldn't have been finished otherwise. No, I think it's just as likely that the landowner wants to give them a day's pay for a partial day's work. He's a benevolent landowner, and I think that what he sees is they need rescuing from the day. Remember I said that because if they didn't work, they didn't eat, and the landowner knows that too. It's also just as likely that if they didn't work, their family wouldn't eat either. And this is what the story is about. This landowner that goes out on the 11th hour to people that are desperate and brings them in and has them work for an hour and gives them the full day's wage. To be fair, the landowner, landowner asks the men at the 11th hour why they are not working, and basically they say that nobody has hired them. And the landowner tells them, you go to work too, and they do. We should note here that the laborers are still waiting to be hired even though the day is almost over. And this speaks to the desperate condition of these people. Who would wait around till there's one day left in the work day to see if they would get hired? And certainly they wouldn't expect that if they did get hired for, a day's, for an hour's worth of work, they'd get a day's pay. They haven't left because there's still a chance, no matter how small, that someone will need them to do a job then pay them for it. But I doubt that they expect that for an hour's worth of work, they'll get a day's worth of pay. So again, if we look at verse 8, we see what we were talking about earlier, that the law requires them to pay the people at the end of the day. So the landowner, making good on that, because he's benevolent and fair, tells his foreman to call them in and pay them. So the landowner starts at the last, the ones that came at five, and work for an hour, and the foreman gives them a denarius, a whole day's pay. We look on in verse 10. See, we see what the response was from the first group. They expect to receive more, and in fact, it promotes grumbling. And not just any kind of grumbling, they grumble to the master of the house. You know, it seems like there's a lot of arrogance there. The foreman goes to pay them, and they go to the master of the house and complain about the wage that they're receiving. They went straight to the top to complain. <laughs> Does that tell you about expectations and what they expected? Does it tell you about how the level of a grievance of grievance that they're experiencing. They go straight to the top to complain about receiving what they were promised in the beginning to be paid. 
But their comparison is, well, the people that came last received what we received. They received the day's wage, which is exactly what we received. At this point, we have to ask ourselves, why would they expect more? Did they do more than they agreed to? No, the text doesn't say that. The laborers encounter something especially rigorous. It talks about the heat of the day, but we can presume it wasn't especially hot. It was just normally hot. So why would they expect something different? <coughs> Excuse me. They expect more because the landowner paid the workers the same wage that they got and that they agreed to. Despite the outrage of the first group of workers who were hard at it from the early morning hours and throughout the day, they're upset because they received what they were promised. That wasn't good enough once they found out that other people had done less and been paid as much. Even now, some of us would probably admit if this were our lives, we would be more than a little irritated that the workers that showed up later are getting the same wage for doing less. Which doesn't seem fair. But this is the point of the story. What Jesus is illustrating is lavish grace. The point of the parable is the difference between God and man. The difference is that God gives lavishly, especially to those that need it, and especially to those that don't feel like they deserve it. When we look at the passage and compare it to last week's passage, what we also see is the order is reversed. In verse 29 it says, Many who are first will be last, and the last first, excuse me, will be last and the last first. If we look at verse 16, it says, the last will be first and the first last. It's very curious that their order is reversed. It's probably not because Jesus is being cryptic or hard to figure out. The last will be first and the last first to the first the last will be first and the first will be last. So I think what Jesus is trying to indicate here is it's, it's more a question of position than categories. This isn't about the Jews becoming last and the Gentiles becoming first or vice versa. It's really about none of that mattering. Jesus is talking about grace and equality This was Jesus' message to the rich young ruler, give up everything and follow me, just like all these other people have done. And you see the rich young ruler went away sad because he wanted more than everybody else had gotten who had already given up everything and followed Christ. And what he says is, you will all receive the inheritance that you do not deserve. Jesus is going to go on and secure that, secure that in his very own blood. So if we look even in this passage, when it's time to pay them, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And they all receive the same, whether they've worked all all day in the heat or just showed up at the end of the day and barely broke a sweat. They all receive the same reward. Now, it breaks down a little bit because we can underwhelm this passage focusing on the monetary aspect of it. But the point of the parable is not, as the first worker suggests, (coughs) 
excuse me, we only got what was promised, but the jubilation of the last. Who have to be asking, how is it possible to receive a day's wage for an hour's worth of work? How is it possible that we, the last chosen, the least wanted, the most undeserving of a full day's pay, received a day's wages for an hour's worth of work? Harry Ironside says, the grace is the very opposite of merit. Grace is not only undeserved favor, but it is favor shown to the one who has deserved the very opposite. I like this word, lavish grace. Lavish lavish means sumptuously rich, elaborate, or luxurious. And lavish grace is God's most abundant currency. That is what he deals out without keeping track of. He gives lavishly to those that don't deserve it. How else can we describe it when you think about all the people that God has lavishly poured out his grace upon? Take Rahab, for example, an Amorite prostitute found in the book of Joshua, chapter 2, named after an Egyptian god, Ra. Rahab is referred to as being the wife of Salmon, one of the two spies she sheltered. In turn, she became the mother of Boaz, who married Ruth, from whose son Obed, Jesse, the father of David, came through whose line Jesus was born. Three times over in scripture, she is described as a harlot, but what else do we know about her? She sheltered Israeli spies and God married her into a royal line that Jesus was born from. That is an example of lavish grace. Amazing, liberating, lavish grace, friends. It's the only currency in a -a one-of-a-kind kingdom that can take a prostitute and make them princesses, make kings out of shepherds, shepherd boys, and princes out of paupers. William Spurstow said, God promises are like a bag full of golden coins that God pours out the feet of his adopted children and says, take what you will. And looking back on this first group, they are more concerned about their own merit that they have missed the grace, and there isn't even any gratefulness for the full day's pay. The first group got the agreed upon amount but was dissatisfied. And you have to wonder, is it, is it because they want more or is it really about wanting the other people to get less? And I also want to talk about briefly this this reciprocity idea which the peril of reciprocity the the last thing I want to say is it's contrary to the kingdom of God and we see this parable we see this idea of reciprocity in this first group that they must be deserving of more because they have labored longer I deserve more because I have done more And this is a self-righteous kind of concept that you see in the rich young ruler too. Who not only talks about keeping the law since he was young, but you see that he expects more than the people, the poor people that had already given up everything to follow Christ. He wants to know what else is he going to get 
because he's giving up more. Even though Jesus is surrounded by poor men, women, and children who've left everything to follow him, the rich young ruler still wants to know what else he's going to get. And when Peter asked the question, he tells Peter that he, was, he made the right choice. So my friends, the right choice is not to hoard, it's to discard. Not possessions, but reliance on possessions. To let go of a sense of worthiness because of possessions. And this is a common theme for kingdom residents. You see these things all over the place. Jesus tells them, you must become like these little ones. And we talked about that. He's not specifically meaning children. He's meaning the people that are less. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus' message is all about the lavish grace he pours out to those that think they deserve less, not those that think they deserve more. Daniel Cowdery says, If all the graces of God are precious pearls, then humility is the string that binds them all together. And if we look in the book of John, verse 3, we see then Mary took about a pint of purple nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And that's an example of humility. And think about the thief on the cross. He's like a laborer that shows up at the end of the day expecting a crumb, and what he gets is a feast instead. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, looking back at these groups, who do you think had a greater understanding of the identity of, of the mission and the identity of Christ? Reciprocity is this idea that the more you do, the more you deserve. The message of the Bible is you don't deserve anything, but I'm going to lavishly bestow it on you anyway. And we know that the self-righteous can always find a reason to believe that they deserve more or have somehow been slighted for being given less. In any way, Christ is really the one giving up everything to pay our ransom. Ephesians 1 says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And this word redemption comes it's the same root as the word redeemed and it comes from the practice of slavery which means that there's this cost associated. The ransom price has to be paid to free the slave. You were bought for a price so that you could be freed from bondage. Now the price was death and the person who paid it was Christ. And we hear this. We hear this that we are not deserving of it, but we are made equal because of it. We have all gotten the same glorious reward. And it's summed up in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is a covenant. This is a covenant with God. And if you recall the story of the vision, where Abraham, where the lamp passes between the parts of the animal, from Genesis 15, this is a covenant God ratifies with himself. It's God's responsibility to fulfill it, and God can't do anything else but fulfill it perfectly. So regardless of what your status is in life, whether you're a prince or a pauper, a princess or a prostitute, regardless of your race, your ethnicity, your criminal history, your occupation, your marital status, at the foot of the cross, we're all equal. Whether you are the most skilled laborer or whether you are the, first, the last person waiting because you are the least desirable worker of all. Whether you are called by God last week living the most vile of lives or called at nine years old, brought to your parents' bedside in the middle of the night because you realized what sin was and what hell was and you decided at that very moment to put your faith and trust in Christ. Then you have received your reward, God's lavish grace, undeserved, unmerited, but freely poured out. And today, friends, the landowner bids you to come and work in his field and receive your wages with joy and gladness. Because of his great love, if you have made your faith, if you have put your faith in Christ, you don't have to be worthy because he has made you worthy. Ephesians 2, 4 spells it out. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him at the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, even if, this is, even if today is the day that you put your trust and faith in Christ, he makes you saved as if you were chosen before the foundation of the earth. Because you were. So be grateful, be joyful, and most of all, be intentional. This is the gospel that saves. And go tell the good news. Now let's pray.